Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Hi, and welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your guest host, John Young. Today, I have a very special guest, Ty Mansfield. Ty has experienced same-sex attraction and took a long, difficult, and ultimately enlightening road to where he is today, married with two children. Ty, let's start by describing how you first began to recognize you had same-sex attraction. I wasn't always conscious of it growing up. I grew up uh, I grew up in Utah uh, in a day, I mean, it was pre-Will and Grace, pre-Ellen, where probably the, the older, harsher stereotypes prevailed and i i don't know that i really identified i mean i knew i mean i felt attraction to other men but i don't know that i really understood what was going on i certainly didn't have a word for what was going on but i just you know in in junior high uh, junior high and high school i was involved in in student leadership and things so i was always just really involved in doing things in a way that i don't know I, that i really needed to kind of slow down and, and think about what was going on like things were pretty well i had a, a good group of friends um and so it wasn't until i went to it wasn't actually until after my mission or actually on my mission i had some experiences where uh you know there was a you know we would we would track into or teach gay individuals at various times and i remember teaching once a young man who well, he had invited us back a couple of times, and at one point he said something like, I don't think I would be a good fit in your church or something like that. And I think both of my companions, and finally we were just, we were kind of probing because he wouldn't really come out and say why, but he was interested in meeting with us, but he, you know, he came out and finally said that he was, that he was gay. And both of my companion and I kind of had a so what? Like I didn't really think, it didn't strike me as being incompatible because it was, just you know you just follow the commandments you know yeah because i had always thought whatever this is well and i guess i should probably back up because i have this memory and i don't know where this memory comes from i think it must have been a dream but it's in my memory i mean as i remember it it's a memory and i remember driving with my dad and my dad's kind of a you know he's a southern idaho farm boy you know grew up in a rural community and the way that he reacted later is is different than he reacted in this in this memory that i have but i remember Having, I, re, I have this very clear memory of being really young, probably four or five, and driving with my dad in the car and having this conversation with him about gay people, just being curious about gay people. And in my memory, he says to me, a lot of gay people marry and have children in the family or have families in the church just like everybody else. And it was just this very kind of casual, nonchalant, like memory that a conversation that we were having in this memory. And I, and for some reason, like this has always been there. And, uh, and I, and so as I got older, that was always kind of in the backdrop. I thought, whatever these feelings are, it doesn't really matter because I can get married and have a family just like anybody else. But, but again, I don't really, I don't really know what the source is for that memory. I just know that it's there and I, and I, and I, and it doesn't really gel with kind of how my dad is, you know? 
<laughs> and so, <clears throat> and so anyway, so we, that was kind of always the feeling like whatever this is, I don't need to put a label on. I don't need to worry about it. I just need to move forward and do the right thing. Right. Yeah. And I kind of thought of, I kind of thought of high school more in terms of I dated a ton, but it was just a lot of dates. It was, and there were people that I, I liked, but it wasn't like a strong draw or at least a strong sexual attraction. It was just more of like, this is a really cool girl or whatever. And, and I never had any serious relationships. And I just kind of had this mentality. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready for my mission. Like there's no reason to really think seriously about what any of this means right now. And so I didn't. And then on my mission, it came up a couple times. And then right towards the end of my mission, there was a couple. So we were in this ward and the bishop, we were in a, my companion and I were in a, a PEC meeting and the bishop hands us these, like these names and says, you know, you know, so these names were members of the church or at least members on record who they showed up in his ward, didn't know who they were. And, and he asked if we'd go find them. And so my companion and I went and knocked on the door of this address and a, a guy came to the door who was kind of a clean cut guy. Like we were thinking, and what, you know, he invited us in like really nice, really, really nice guy. And we were thinking it was just, you know, a couple of Mormon guys who got tired of the Utah scene and decided to get away. And one of them was an artist and, you know, Maine, I served my mission in New England and this was in Maine and, and Maine is really, really beautiful. And this was a coastal area. And so that was kind of all I was thinking of it. And then later he mentioned to me that he and his partner were gay. And it, and, and this was the first time we'd actually like talked to somebody that was LDS and we were having a more in depth conversation because we were talking to them about why they, you know, how long they'd been together. And they'd been together for probably 20 years, I guess, maybe they met in their singles ward. Actually, they said back in Utah about 20 years before. And that was the first time I remember, I remember really thinking like, I get it. I, that's not the direction I see myself going, but I get it. But I still didn't feel like I could ever talk about it. I didn't tell them about what I was feeling. I just remember walking away from that and my companion saying to me, like, I just don't understand that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how people can believe they were born that way. Because, of course, they believe in the born that way thing. Yeah. Uh, how people can believe they were born that way. And and uh, and, and I just, I just kind of sat there sort of reflective and not saying much. Because I did, I did get it. But I wasn't really conscious. I hadn't asked a lot of questions. I just knew that like there was a piece of me that resonated with what they were saying. And that was about it. And so then my, 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 my parents came and picked me up from my mission. <clears throat> and it was interesting because, uh, so my mission again was the New Hampshire mission and, and the Boston mission is just below and we were kind of touring around. We spent one day in Boston and that one day happened to be gay pride day. And so we were kind of walking around the city and there was rainbows everywhere. Um, we kind of, you know, we, we got caught in the middle of the parade for a little bit and I could see my dad was visibly uncomfortable and it, and it was a little, it was a little raunchy. There was some raunchy things going on there. And, and, and much later when I ended up, when I actually, this was probably three, at least three years later, four years later, maybe, um, when I, when I actually confided in my dad, mentioned everything that, you know, kind of what was going on. Cause at that point I didn't, I started to really come to terms of things and, and just didn't believe that I would ever, ever get married. And he said to me, so do you remember that day in Boston? I said, yeah, I do. And he said, so he said, so you're into that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, no, like that's not, that isn't like, that was his impression of what gay was. Yeah. That's a common impression. I think especially for an older generation. I mean, today I think we have very different models and role models of what it, what it means to be gay or people who are lesbian or gay who are, you know, just uh, certainly not that kind of raunchy, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of raunchiness uh, that was going on there. And I think, and that was, and that was the old stereotype too. 
Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like seeing what was going on. It was confirming some of these older stereotypes, and and so and I I knew by this chant by this time that that's not what it was. But I don't think that my dad had come to that point. So anyway, so that was it was about that time. It was about after my mission. I'd been home from my mission for about two years. Again, just dating. Now I started dating with this real sense of like intention because it's time to to date seriously and to get married and to move on to the next step. And I just kept hitting this wall. And I uh, I, I would find girls that I uh, at least on paper that I really, really liked. And there was even a couple of girls that I dated that I really, really liked in a romantic way, but there was, there wasn't any kind of like sexual feelings or anything like that. And I just sort of felt like I was hitting this wall and, um, and, and decided at one point that I needed, I had sort of a crisis where I could always ask myself, I'd run this little dialogue in my head. Like if I had the chance to, to act out sexually or to be sexual with another man, would I No. okay, good. I'm not gay. And that was the dialogue that I was, I would, always run through in my head Hmm. and and at one point and i remember i was i was working at the mtc at the time and i i had this really spiritual night with the the district that i was teaching and and i because i'd always i always thought of ssa as a spiritual problem like you just need to be more spiritual and have more faith and as you do it will go away and at this point i felt spiritually stronger than i'd ever been and spiritually more attuned than i'd ever been but the feelings were getting stronger and and in hindsight, I, I have a lot more understanding of some of the psycho-emotional dynamics uh, that tend to play into it. And and so it makes sense to me now why that was the case, but that wasn't the paradigm. I didn't have that understanding then. And so I, the paradigm I was operating under was just shattered by this uh, this kind of conflict of I was increasing in spirituality, but the feelings, the, the intensity of the feelings were also growing t- too. And that was sort of a breaking point for me. And I realized that I can't do this on my own anymore because I'd never said anything to anybody ever at this point. And I realized that I needed to, to talk to somebody and, and, um, the, the person that made the most sense was to talk to my bishop. So I did and he was good. He was okay. And not amazing, but he was, he was nice about it and recommended a counselor. And so I started seeing a counselor at BYU. I was at BYU at the time. So that's kind of the, the, the digest version. I think I remember you saying you were dating men at one time. Where does, does that fall into the narrative you just gave? So after I started seeing a bishop, he recommended seeing a counselor. I saw that counselor for about a year, um, off and on. And then, and that was helpful. Like it was helpful to be able to talk about it, but I still felt yeah. kind of alone. Um, and he was good. He was really good in kind of helping me ask myself the right questions or at least better questions because mm-hmm. there's such a shame narrative around this and people get really introspective and, and, and kind of self-defeating, I think in a lot of the ways that they think about this. And so to be able to avoid vocalize things and to, and to try to asking questions that helped me to relate to it in a healthier way was helpful, but I still felt very alone and very isolated. After about a year, I realized I, I just, I felt like, and, and during that first year, I, I just, there was no way I just wanted to get this stuff resolved. I wanted to move on with my life. Nobody was ever going to know this. Um, it was fine with other people dealt with this, but nobody would ever know that I dealt with this. And that was kind of my thinking after about a year, uh, I realized that I, I just, I felt this hunger just to talk to somebody else who got it from experience. And, but I didn't know how you found people like that, especially people that were faithful because I really, really want to stay, stay faithful. And, and, and I, you just, it was, I couldn't find anybody. Um, or at least I, you know, I started kind of reaching out online, but people that are reaching out online are, are usually not looking to talk to other people about faith and doctrine, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I just kept running up against this, this thing of, of people who I couldn't find anybody that wanted to be faithful. And so then I started attending, I found a local, well, my counselor was aware of a local support group. And so I, 
I finally reached out there and, and, and the most of the people there, I mean, they were all folks who at least at that time were wanting to be faithful, or at least that's why they were there, but it just seemed kind of unhealthy. Like it was very much kind of the white knuckle hanging on, uh, yeah. teeth sort of thing. And, uh, one guy, I mean, he'd been attending for years and was still acting out regularly in saunas and things like that. It just the, where the people were was probably, even though they were active in the church and quote unquote staying the course, it just felt more discouraging than anything. I couldn't find anybody that was just, that was healthy, that was solid, that was happy. And, and, and granted, you know, a lot of people who are in that place aren't out. At, they're not att- typically attending support groups. People who are attending support groups are people who are struggling. So I still didn't know how to find the people who were, who were doing well and that I could talk to. So I went from feeling isolated, not knowing anybody who I could not finding anybody who was faithful to finding people who are faithful and feeling like questioning whether or not that's even an option. Like, does that work? Is it possible? Cause I wanted to believe that it was, but I, I just couldn't find anybody that was there. And, you know, when you talk to counselors and stuff, they give you statistics or people that they worked with in therapy who are, are doing fine, but it's not like, that's not the same thing as being able to have a real conversation with somebody. Yeah. And so that was, and then finally I just, I thought, you know, I've got to figure this out for myself. And, and I decided at one point that I was just, I was going to explore that world and I was going to start dating guys just to try to figure out what that meant. And, and I was cautious and tentative about it, but I was willing to, but I was going to open myself up to that. And I did. And, and I learned a lot. And so I dated, I dated guys for about a year. Um, and then at the end of, after about a year, and I actually saw myself on my way out of the church at that time. And, um, and I had some, just some really strong spiritual impressions that spoke to me in a way that communicated some things that I wanted to believe or needed to know or needed to feel. And in some cases didn't really know, but that really gave me both this, the strength and the renewed desire to recommit myself. And, and so that's kind of where, and then from there is where I, the, the story kind of evens out and. Okay. Uh, so this experience that you had that was something of a turning point you felt that no matter what you were where you were and what you were doing that god loved you unconditionally was was that a part of this turnaround Uh uh-huh there were two so kind of the there was two really strong spiritual experiences that i had kind of before or as part of this recommitment and then i had another they, they were not just spiritual experiences they were more like it was sort of mystical like it was um you know, cause there are times where I feel the spirit really strong and I, you know, mm-hmm. but this was, it was different. Like the intensity and the palpability of the, of the experience was just so dramatically different than anything I'd ever experienced before or, or since. And there's, but there was three of those. And one of those was the one that I referenced in, uh, Mormons and gays. Two, two of them. And I don't know if I, they kind of got conflated in the, in the way that I, I showed them in the video, but they were two separate experiences. One of them was okay. I was driving to my, to home and, um, and that was when I had this really strong, I mean, it just this, this sort of envelopment in this feeling of love. And that was the one where I just felt God saying, because I felt so like, I, you know, I was coming from a place I shouldn't have been and, and doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And I just felt like I was at this low point in terms of the lowest, I mean, the least quote unquote worthy I'd ever been in my life. And I think I'd always kind of, uh, you know, when you're worthy, you feel God's love and when you're not, you don't, you know, this sort of thing. And I remember, yeah. um, driving and, and feeling kind of reflecting on where I was and what was happening with my life and where I was going and what I wanted. And, and again, sort of wishing that I knew how to do this in the church, but just having no concept of that. And, and then just having this feeling kind of out of nowhere, just this, this 
this envelopment and this feeling of love that wasn't a rebuke. It wasn't an affirmation. It was just this feeling of, I love you and I'm with you. And that was, it was so beautiful. And I, I theologically known that, uh, that God loved me. And I think I'd probably even felt that maybe at some point, but it still just felt like an idea. Mm-hmm. But it's communicated in a way that I'd never felt it, never experienced it, and certainly never known it. And it was just really transformative. And I realized, and I, I determined at that point that I was going to keep, I wanted to keep putting myself in places where I could feel the spirit in hopes that I could still figure out a way to do this in the church in a way that didn't feel so heavy and conflicted and, and, and whatnot. Okay. So what I like about that is you, you, you know, you're trying real hard. You're going downhill. And then God speaks to you and, you know, testifies of his love for you. Did that kind of, I guess, release some pressure that you felt? Um, would that be a good way to explain it? Pressure in, in what sense? I guess pressure in the sense that um, you feel you're either in the church or you're against it or you're, um, if you can't live up to expectations given by the church, then you're in a really bad spot. And that kind of pressure will, you know, cause some people to become angry and, and turn against the, those who have tried to guide them in a different direction. And yeah. so I guess my feeling on some of these cases is, is that when people get to a point where they just give up, they may get angry and turn against their former friends and colleagues who did that guidance to another direction. And so what I think happens there is that the pressure gets to them and they feel like this isn't compatible. And sometimes I kind of wonder, is there a stage where you feel like I'm still compatible with God and my family and to an extent my church, even if I'm not walking the line, so to speak? Maybe you walk walk the line in some ways, but in other ways you're, you're quite deviant. And mm-hmm. so I'm kind of wondering if that took some pressure on you, off you, that maybe uh, allowed you to move on and actually overcome the thing that you were working so hard against when that pressure came off. Um, I don't know. The second one, there was definitely a, a pressure release in the way that I felt it. That one, I don't know. I think I just I, what I what I know that I felt most most keenly was just this renewed desire to keep trying mm-hmm. and in that that god had not abandoned me for sure and that being and i and i knew that i felt a loss of light like i it was very clear to me and one of my spiritual gifts that that my patriarchal blessing talks about and that has really become very real uh, over time is uh, there's the gift of spiritual discernment like i Whatever it is, like I just have a very, very keen sense of spiritual things and and of knowing the gift to know. Like I, I've known things um, on just this deep spiritual level that I I don't know how I've always known them. I've just known them, and um, and I I I never doubted the church, and I I went, did go through an angry phase in there. I don't know that I was angry at God. I don't know who I was angry at. I was just angry. Yeah. And, um, and I would just listen to angry music and like, I just, I was so angry. And I, but I don't know that I felt that anger at God. But at this point, I just, I just knew that I had felt God's love in a way that I didn't, I'd never felt it before. I wanted to feel that again. I wanted to be close to that. And so I decided that I was going to keep trying. And so I, I, I did, I, you know, I, I never went inactive. I always stayed active during this time. At the beginning of this, before I even started dating guys, I actually, 
handed my temple recommend to my bishop and said, I don't, and I'd been open with him up to this point. And I, I said to him, I don't think I can, I don't feel good about holding this until I, 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 I figure this out. Like I need to figure this out first. And when I'm ready, I'll be back. Okay. And, and, and I think he felt helpless. Like he had really tried to help me and really tried to give me hope. And, and he was this Bishop. This is, I, I changed words by this point. Yeah. And this Bishop was amazing, just so nurturing and so loving. And he was so alpha male-ish. So it was sort of this sort of, uh, it was just, a, he was the man's man. He was the dude, you know, like, and he was to have him be so nurturing and outreaching and just loving was very, very, um, meant a lot to me. And I, but at this point I just still didn't know what to do. And so I, I gave him my temple recommend and then I started, that's when I started dating guys. And then, um, and, but, but I always stayed active in church. You know, I wasn't taking the sacrament or anything, but I, I, I would at least attend. Um, and so I, and I, after I had this first experience, I just kept going and kept, you know, I'd, I'd go to firesides, I'd go to places, any place where I felt like I could feel the spirit. Cause again, like I knew God loved me, but I didn't feel resolved. Like I didn't, this love piece was clear, but nothing else was other than the fact that I know that God loves me and that he's not going to abandon me through this. That was the only like thing that I knew out of that experience, how to do this in the church, feeling peace in, in, and not knowing if I was going to marry, uh, none, I mean, none of that was clear. And then at one point I was in this kind of this devotional address and, and, and kind of still sort of seeing, am I, am I on my way out of the church? And I had this very, very strong spiritual experience, this sort of, again, again, this kind of this mystical feeling again, like return. And the, it was a, a very clear communication that if you leave, I will always take you back, but I need you now. And, and, and with that, there was this feeling of, of washing. Like, and I don't even know how to describe it other than the fact that there was a sort, the only way I can picture it, like I picture this sort of black light that has like shards of white light piercing through it and coming out. Like that's sort of what I, it's the only metaphor I can think of for what I felt like was happening inside of me. And I've never experienced such a transformative experience in a moment. And I felt like this, this feeling of envelopment in this love again, but this one came with more of a communication that I love you. It was like, it was that it was, I need you now. Like if you leave, I will always take you back, but I need you now. And to take this one step at a time. And this was the experience in them that I talked about in the church's video where they were, the, the speaker was talking about, uh, Isaiah and this eunuch and, you know, uh, if the eunuch will take hold of my covenant, he shall have a place and a name more than greater than that of sons and of daughters, right? If he will keep with my, if he keeps my Sabbath and takes hold of the covenant and, and just having this feeling and I, I don't, the communication wasn't conclu- as clear as just the feeling that if I never get married, it's okay. I just need to take, take life a day at a time and to not worry about marriage and to, re, and to let go of the pressure of church culture. Because, you know, I, I, church culture can be really oppressive sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's part of the pressure I was talking about. You know, you're yeah. able to, you know, okay, step aside and let the pressure push somewhere else, but not on you. This is the one where that was really clear to me. And okay. I don't think, I don't think that I, I realized how much power I gave the church as opposed to God. Um, and it's hard. Like I grew up in Utah where sometimes it's really difficult to, there's, it's hard to differentiate between the gospel and family culture, the gospel and church culture, um, the gospel and Utah culture. It sort of all feels conflated in one, you know? Yeah. There, there are people in Utah that have really healthy family cultures and dynamics 
um, that maybe prepares one to have a healthier relationship with the culture of the church as opposed to the gospel. But I don't think that I did. In my mind, I didn't know how to differentiate church from family, from from Utah, from, um, you know, all those things. So there was just so much culture and gospel all mixed together in this way. And in this experience, it all became clear to me what was gospel and what was not. And I felt free to, I wanted to stay close to the gospel, to adhere to the gospel, which includes the law of chastity. And I believe in the law of chastity as it's defined and described in the church today. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I felt I wanted to do that, but I also didn't want the pressure of church culture because I'd been in a ward where the bishop said, and this was part of where I started to kind of break. And I just thought, can I do this? The bishop said, if you're not dating at least twice a week, you're not magnifying your priesthood. And I just thought, and for someone that was just trying to hang on and like deal with certain, some of these conflicts, like that just felt like enough, that was enough to put me over the edge, you know? And I, and I realized that, and, and that was over a year earlier that I'd had that experience, but that was just a breaking experience, but it kind of epitomizes for me this sort of oppressive culture and some of the things that we say and do that are, that are not, not gospel and they're not doctrine. And as well-meaning as, as my bishop, as well-meaning as I know he was, and as much as he may have tried to get some people that were kind of spiritually lazy off their duffs and, and doing things, it just had this negative effect on me. And so anyway, in this experience, I just, I felt free to not focus on marriage and just to focus on coming to Christ. Because before that, and again, growing up in Utah, I always wanted to be a good member of the church. And uh, and that was the goal. You want to be a good member of the church. In my mind, I wanted to be a good member of the church. But in this moment, like the way that it all kind of transformed for me in this sort of dramatic kind of experience was, I want to be a disciple of Christ. I don't want to be a good member of the church. And, and I think that a, a kind of church activity and engagement. I knew that I wanted to do the journey in the church because I believe in the church. Yeah. But I didn't, but my goal was to, it was the first, I felt saved. Like it was just this weird experience. Like when evangelicals talk about this moment of being coming saved, the moment they knew they were saved. Yeah. Like I sort of get it. Like I sort of, I mean, sometimes we talk about that in a pejorative way, but in that moment I felt saved and I felt like I knew what it means to have a savior in a way that I'd never understood it before. Well, I mean, that's a really amazing, I, you know, how the church is. And to say something you just said to a lot of people that, you know, you felt like you were a disciple or you wanted to be strong in the gospel, uh, but the church wasn't necessarily, you know, something that was going to uh, be something that put a lot of pressure on you. That might seem a little bit um, <laughs> like you're on your way out. You know, that's not the kind of thing that people often say. But yet, yeah. when you say church, I don't think you mean, you know, the church as, a, as an institution, meaning, you know, the priesthood authorities, the right, right. the endowments. I think you're talking about, and people will often conflate these, uh, you're just talking about the way people try to make sense of the church and help others, well-meaning, but, you know, often painting with broad strokes. And There's a, a culture and a kind of a social conformity. Yeah, the social conformity aspect. Yeah. Okay. Because I believe, I believe in the doctrine. I, I believe, I, I fully sustain uh, church leaders as prophets, seers, and revelators. I believe that they are. I believe that they're called of God. Like, I don't have any questions about that. I've never questioned that. It was more of, like, my relationship to the church. And I sort of think about it, and, and you know, I, from a therapist's perspective, I sort of, you know, people that have sort of a fused or enmeshed or sometimes we call it codependent relationship with another mm-hmm. person. Um, like, I can't be happy unless you're happy. You know, this sort of uh, unhealthy relationship, I think... It's not so much that the issue is with the church as it is the relationship that people have with the church. 
that sometimes yeah. we have a sort of codependent relationship with the church. And, and I, I think, or at least that that describes my experience in which I needed the church to tell me what was okay always. And I needed the church to tell me what was not okay and, and not really relying or understanding that as much from God as I was, as it was from the church. Mm. So I remember, and, and, I, and it's hard to say that because I believe I'm a believer fully. And I, again, sustain and believe in priesthood authority and covenants yeah. and, and all of that. But there was a culture and there's, there's just something about the way I think culturally sometimes the doctrine is taught or administered that I think is a little bit problematic. Mm-hmm. And I, and I believe that if someone is a true disciple of Christ, they will be a good member of the church. But I think that has to be before being a good member of the church. It's sort of law of Moses-ish, right? Like I think that yeah. there's an element, the, the law of Moses was given by God, as we learn, uh, in the Book of Mormon to be a schoolmaster, or Paul, the, the, the book of, the law was to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Okay. Yeah. And I think, the problem with the Jews was that the law stopped being a schoolmaster and the law was the master. Mm-hmm. Right. And Paul said, you know, he talked about, we need to have the law no longer on tables of stone, but on the fleshy tables of the heart. And, and even, you know, other Ballard has talked about the, the church as a, uh, a scaffolding and that the house of faith is ours to build. Like the church cannot build our house of faith for us. The church is to be a fortification and a support in the building of our house of faith in the building of our families of faith. And I think sometimes it becomes reverse, right? I mean, this is what got the Jews in trouble. Like they were so focused on the law that when the lawgiver stood before them, they didn't even recognize him, right? And I think, you know, even in, in the evangelical church, I mean, you've got the Bible becomes the law and the Bible sort of comes sometimes in the way that some people relate to scripture, that scripture becomes more important than God. Yeah, so... Or the law becomes more important than God, or the church becomes more important than God, or anything that comes yeah. before God, even if it's God-given, even if it's God-given, mm-hmm. if we put it before God, it becomes a, a relationship of idolatry. Even happiness, right? Like, you know, we Joseph Smith, that, uh, happiness is the object and design of our existence, right? Yes. But if I am seeking happiness, and happiness is my ultimate goal, and God is just a tool to achieve happiness... Then as soon as God, as soon as the God's, the utility of God in that role wears out or God is not, is not fulfilling his part of the bargain to make me happy, I'll find something else that makes me happy. Yeah. So would you say that, you know, in the church today mm-hmm. that we often see this idolatry of putting the, the church uh, before God and perhaps putting God down there as a tool that we use? Um, I mean, how maybe, bad of a problem do you think it is? Well, I just think, I think, I think things have changed in, in the last several years as we've had more of a culture of talking about grace mm-hmm. and, and speaking of, of Christ and, um, you know, like Camille Frank Olson, she's one of my, uh, you know, she's a kind of a popular writer and speaker. She's one of my colleagues here and, and is a dear friend. And, and she said that at one point she was teaching seminary and a girl that she was talking to had said, if I'm remembering the story right, I might be mis- misremembering some of this, but a girl was like, was struggling. She, she, she was leaving. She was talking to a girl who said she was on the way out of the church and had been attending another church or was invited to another church by a friend who said, we just don't really talk about Christ in the church. Mm-hmm. And not that Christ wasn't a part of our doctrine. And this was, you know, probably 20 or 30 years ago. So this, we're talking again, kind of pre where we are right now. And, and Camille, she's like, I don't, I just don't, I don't, I don't see that, you know? And, and so she asked her students, she's like, what, she asked her students about that. And they all sort of agreed. Like, we don't really 
talk about Christ, or at least in terms of, and the thing that I, uh, Douglas Davies, so back when the, Douglas Davies is a LDS scholar who's, I don't know if you know that name, but he's, or not an LDS scholar, he's, um, I don't know if he's, he's Church of England, but he uh, is a kind of a friend of Mormons. He's a, a scholar of Mormonism from the outside. Okay. And, it, and in 2005, when BYU did this uh, bicentennial or sesquicentennial, bicentennial of the prophet's birth, right? And it was co-sponsored with the Library of Congress. And they had LDS scholars and non-LDS scholars of Mormonism kind of speaking at the Library of Congress. And Douglas Davies, he said in his talk, and I've always remembered this, he says, I think that Mormons tend to relate to Jesus more as the organizer and framer of the church to which they belong than an intimate guest of the private heart. Yeah. And I think that that's true. We relate to Christ through the church. And not that and not that the doctrine that this isn't Christ church, because I believe that it is. Uh-huh. But my relationship to Christ cannot be mediated by the church. My relationship to Christ, to the Savior, my relationship to the Father has to be mine. And the church can be a support in that. It can be a scaffolding in that. And, you know, there's the authority to perform ordinances and the covenants that we make. And all of that is, is sort of mediated uh, through through the church and, and the authority that has been granted there. Yeah, but the, the church cannot mediate, of... the church can't mediate my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And yeah. that sort of, and I think, I think there's just a slight distortion that if not really understood can get in the way and can actually inhibit our relationship with God than facilitate our relationship with God. And that's the role of the church. That's the role of the prophets, right? Yeah. I mean, when you've got, um, you know, uh, El Sad Medad in the Bible, I think if I remember those names right, where, where Moses is with the elders in the, in the camp of Israel and the spirit comes down and they're speaking in tongues and the spirit comes, um, comes down on, on El Sad and Medad and they, they, you know, they, you know, someone runs to tell Moses like, ah, they're prophesying or whatever. And he's like, are you jealous? And they shouldn't be, right? Cause they weren't in the camp of the elders. Are you jealous for my sake? Right. <laughs> Moses says, would the Lord God that all of his people were prophets? Right. And I think that's the role of a prophet. A prophet says, I've seen God. I want you to see him with me. And like Moses wanting to invite the elders of Israel up onto the mount with him. And they're like, no, like, why don't you go up and you see God and you just come down and tell us what he says. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of sometimes and sometimes we sort of have that mentality. You get revel- you talk to God and then you tell us what he says. And the role of a true prophet is, is to say, no, you come with me. I want you to experience this with me. And that's how Joseph Smith was. So many of the revelations, he's like, come and open your eyes and see the salvation of the Lord, so to speak. And, and that was a, a really common theme. And I think that's just the theme of true prophets. Prophets will invite us into the relation, into a personal relationship with God as, and to know him as they know him and not become mediators of that relationship, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And so I think there's just, a, I think there's, I think sometimes, in, and this is not universal. In the church, I think there are a lot of people who have a very intimate, very, uh, a very personal and beautiful relationship with Christ. And yet sometimes in the church, I think sometimes you can hear in testimony meetings, like sometimes people's language betrays them, right? Yeah. In, in the way that they say things or the phraseology and, or, or, or sometimes you'll hear a testimony and Christ isn't even mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, or, or even God isn't even mentioned or God isn't even mentioned. And so I think there's just this sense in which through that experience, I, I gained, through those two experiences in particular, I gained this appreciate, this, this feeling of God's love through the first one and through the second one, this feeling of understanding what it means to be saved and to be in a saving relationship with God in Christ. And, and that was just, 
it changed everything. And I didn't believe that I would get married at that point. Mm-hmm. I, fr- I really firmly believed, I did believe that I would get married after this life. I don't, uh, I don't believe for a second that there's going to be gay relationships in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. I did believe I would be married at some point. I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know what I would get there. I just firmly believed that that would not happen in this life. Okay. And, um, but I was okay with that. I felt at peace with that. And I knew that God would continue to nurture me and teach me and lead me and transform me as I needed in my own, you know, in, in the, the, the time and way that he wanted to work with me. And that all I needed to do was take it a day at a time, stay faithful. I was going to do this journey in the church because I believe in the church. And the journey was mine. The journey wasn't the church's and the journey wasn't for anybody else to prescribe. It was my journey. And I was going to do it in accordance with the covenants that I believe and the, and the, the doctrines and the covenants that I believe in. Excellent. And, so, that, and that I felt affirmed in, in the, I mean, I felt like the Lord was affirming all of the truthfulness of those things as much mm-hmm. as he was inviting me into a very personal and private journey, if, if that makes sense. So can you explain how, I mean, how did this happen that you, because you are married, you're married now, yeah. and, yeah. Yeah. you know, how, how did that happen to you? Was it just like a total surprise? Um, was it slow? I mean, it wasn't necessarily like a, a sudden love at first sight. I mean, you can tell me what it was. <laughs> But it sounds like you can't just jump into that right away. No, I mean that was like it was seven years between then and when I got married. Um, okay. I mean it was it was seven years of this journey of taking life at a time, like one day at a time. Like one of my favorite talks that's ever been given by a church leader is Elder Christofferson's "Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread," and um, and it's this it's this idea. Like I mean, what he's teaching in that, I know those principles. I know those to be true because that's what the I mean. The Lord has been teaching that for the teaching me that for the last. Uh, 10 plus years. And, um, uh, and, and so I, I sort of started on that journey and I really didn't believe that I would ever get married. Um, and then at one point I would tell people that I was not going to get married and I sort of felt this rebuke spiritually mm-hmm. and never say never. Right. Right. <laughs> and, but it was this me, dis- but I think this is, I think this is where the distortion, the lack of faith was. I, I, I was deciding that I wasn't going to get married. Yeah. Because that was not what the Lord communicated to me. The Lord, the Lord, what the Lord communicated was let go of that. Don't focus on that. Take life one day at a time. Leave the rest to me. Like that was kind of what was communicated. I just didn't believe that I would ever get married. I just couldn't imagine it. And it was outside this kind of realm of comprehension at, at that time. And, and then at one point, and this was probably a few months later because I just, I just, I mean, it was so liberating to think I'll never get married, you know, Mm. and in, in a way that like I could just kind of, uh, throw off kind of the cultural constraints of the church. And I sort of needed to do that emotionally to kind of push back because it is sort of oppressive. And I, I had to kind of develop this boundary. And I don't think I had to develop a boundary that I didn't ever have. It was sort of like this muscle that I'd never had developed. And I had to sort of strengthen that muscle and, and holding this boundary with, with the culture of the church mm-hmm. and and all of the marriage talks and all of that. And, and being able to hear those things and appreciate that those things were true without while still appreciating that I'm on my own journey, you know? Yeah. And so I, um, uh, I, I, but at one point I had this kind of a spiritual rebuke that if I was to have faith in Christ, true faith, authentic faith, it was not my decision to make that I would never get married, but only that I would prepare myself emotionally and spiritually for marriage. And then I would leave the rest to God. Okay. And, and in this kind of occasion, those were the two things, prepare yourself spiritually and emotionally. And I, and I didn't really, Spiritual growth made sense to me. I mean, we talk about that all the time, how you grow spiritually and what that means. Yeah. But I don't know that I'd ever understood what it means to grow emotionally. 
like I knew, you know, we have emotions, mm-hmm. but, but I didn't really, I, I just didn't really even know what that meant. And, but, it, but those words, I mean, that communication was again, like very clear in terms of focus on growth, spiritually and emotionally, and then to leave the rest to God. And, and so I, at one point I was, but at that point I was getting ready to, to graduate and, um, and I was moving to DC, uh, Washington DC. And, and I, rem- and I remember like there was a, a therapist that I, uh, had heard of and that I, I ran into at a couple of different occasions. And it was a gentleman that identified as a, a former homosexual and had been married for like 25 years. And I remember thinking and having, having this experience like on, on three different occasions and running across this guy, I had this experience. Um, he's the reason that I brought you here. And I didn't think that I was brought to DC. I mean, I, I graduated in Chinese studies and wanted to go into the, I was, you know, I was going to apply to work with the state department, getting ready to take the foreign service exam and, so, you know, so I was kind of moving on this. I had moved out for this in this kind of career trajectory that just made sense because, you know, DC is such a melting pot in every way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and to have this communication, he's the reason that I have brought you here and not feeling that like I was, again, not knowing that I was brought. I thought it was a decision that I was making. And, and I don't, uh, you know, and that's all sort of interesting still for me to think about and how much the Lord leads and guides us in, in ways that we're not always co- even conscious of. Um, but I had that experience and I didn't know what that meant. Uh, I didn't know if I was supposed to see him as a therapist. I didn't know whatever. So I started really, so at one point after the third communication, I decided to just uh, go and talk to him and, and, and see what that meant. Like uh, just to, to talk about his philosophy, what his story, his experience, and to see if there was maybe a way he was supposed to help me because there wasn't any direction other than that, than what I had just said. And, and so I did, I started seeing him as, seeing him as a therapist and he's, and just doing a lot of really deep emotional work, like really looking at, I mean, and this is kind of where I fell in love with healing and, and later decided I wanted to go uh, into, into, into uh, therapy as a field, as a career, but it was so healing for me. And like, I learned so much about myself in a way. And, and his approach to therapy was very, very different than the, than the approach to, to counseling or therapy that I experienced with a therapist at BYU. I mean, it was a good experience at BYU, but it was just a fundamentally different experience in the, in the approach and what he was doing. And it was just doing a lot of really deep emotional work. And then I started getting involved in men's work broadly and doing a lot of kind of experiential therapeutic work. And, and it was, I mean, just over time and engaging in this work, like I, and this is the emotional growth side of it, like understanding it, learning and understanding emotional growth and emotional maturity and emotional awareness. And, and then I, I got involved in, um, I started learning about, you know, mindfulness as a, kind of both as a spiritual practice and as a a mental health practice. Uh, and, and just sort of this, um, I don't know if you're familiar with mind mindfulness, but it's sort of, it's a kind of traditionally a Buddhist concept, but it's sort of, it's kind of the rage right now in, in Western mental health, because there are so many mental health benefits that come from this practice of just being present with self in a non-judgmental way and, and growing in this sort of, of just awareness and being and, uh, and so all of these things that I'm learning and growing in, and in terms of who I, I um, and just matur- maturing in an emotional way and challenging some of my beliefs and challenging stories and, and feeling like I'm kind of peeling away layers of culture and social conditioning and all of these things and, and really kind of growing into who I am on a, on a deeper level. And I remember at one point I had this really kind of cathartic experience where I realized I'd spent 26 years living somebody else's life because I was just trying to conform and do the right things that everybody else said was right and and feeling this loss and grieving this loss of 26 years of not knowing who i was 
And, and again, all of this is just, I'm just kind of in, really engaged in this, this personal growth process that was very healing, very empowering. And, and over time, over, you know, I remember at one point I started to think, you know, maybe I could see myself getting married in this life, but that's like way, that's later. Like, um, and then it started to feel like, you know, I, you know, maybe sooner rather than later, but it still kind of feels like later. And then it starts to feel like sooner, like I can see myself in this happening and, and just feeling like I, I could be present and understanding what it means to love and, uh, on a deeper level. Cause I, I, I just believe that most of what we portray as love in our, in our popular culture is, is not love. We call it love, but it's yeah. not. And, and I think even most couples who kind of feel they're all in love and it's kind of in this infatuation stage of relationship development. I don't believe that that's love. I believe love can grow out of that, but I don't, that feeling is not love. And, um, and so I, and as I started to realize, and as the Lord is teaching me what love is and all of these things, I just started to see that like I could see myself being, being in, in this relationship that I'd always kind of, uh, you know, wanted to believe was a possibility. And then at one point I just started to feel like I could see myself here. And I, and I, I remember praying once that, um, I wanted to know if, and all of this is just feeling like I'd never really prayed about whether or not I was going to get married in this life. Um, it was just this sort of feeling like I can imagine that and I can actually see that being sooner than later now and that kind of thing. And then when I met my wife, um, or at that point I had, so I had this prayer where I decided that I, I wanted to just pray and ask. And I think the way that I said it in, in the, the, the video that's on womansagays.org was like, I, you know, I, you know, the surest way, I didn't know that I was going to get an answer, but the surest way not to get an answer was to not ask. Yeah. And, and so I decided I, I was, I just prayed and asked God if it would ever happen in this life, you know, and if I, if that was going to be sooner or later or whatever. And I didn't feel anything in that moment, but it was right after that I met, or I came, I actually had known, I was actually friends with my wife's brother like 14 years before this or yeah, probably 14 years before this, a long time before this. And I had met her briefly, but I didn't know my wife my now wife and I, but I, we kind of reconnected and, and I just remembered thinking like, I'm really interested in her and, and she was really funny. And I, you know, I, I just thought, you know, a date couldn't hurt, you know, again, worst case scenario doesn't go well and I don't want to go out again, you know, mm-hmm. and I just gave myself permission. And this is where a lot of the mindfulness training was really helpful. It's just, I'm going to give myself permission to be in this moment. And if, and if I want to go on a date, I'm going to go on a date. I decided at that point that I was never going to date for the sake of going on a date. But if there was somebody that I was genu- I felt genuine interest in, I would ask them out. And if I didn't want to mask out on again, I wasn't going to, I just wouldn't ask them out again, you know, and to give myself permission to be with this space where I was in that moment and not have to should myself into anything. Yeah. And- so it sounds like to me, you're creating this environment for yourself where you're not feeling that pressure to be something, but you're giving yourself uh, these goals. I mean, you still, understand that celestial marriage is an important thing and it's something that's a part of our plan of salvation yeah but and you give yourself the allowance to should i say experiment with that but not necessarily push yourself into it right okay and that was very beautiful yeah and that's i mean that's where i think um and i firmly believe like i just believe the restoration is not going to be complete until we fully integrate some of these eastern ideas that i know are true yeah and that are good and that are healthy and in and need to be integrated with some of these other elements of the gospel that are a little bit more Western. You know, we need as much being as we do doing right now. And, and, and we just do a lot of doing in the church. Right. 
And I don't yeah. think we really appreciate just being. And that's where, that's where Buddhist philosophy and, and particularly this practice of, and there's different forms of meditation, but, I, but uh-huh. mindfulness and insight meditation specifically are in kind of cultivating this practice. And I used to go, I, I'd, I'd consistently go to this kind of Buddhist temple to, to do these meditations, right? And I just, it was very healing and very liberating in that way. And, um, and I think, but, but allowing myself just to be in that space. And I think this is, I think this actually is a difficulty that a lot of people in the West who, uh, experience same sex attraction get into is because all of a sudden we're, we're planning our life. I can't ever see myself getting married. And therefore, and we live so far in the future that we decide the now based on what we can't imagine in the future. Mm-hmm. And as a therapist, I mean, I know this, like, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times you work with someone or that I've worked with someone where in the beginning, the beginning and the end of this process of, of whatever goal they're working towards in therapy, at the end of it, they're at this place or at least some point along the journey, they're like, I just never imagined that I could feel like this, you know? And, and so we're sort of like, we get really kind of myopic in the way that we experience, like my conscious experience right now is the only thing that I can imagine. And therefore, this is what I'm going to live for. And, um, and I think the gospel you know, again, my thoughts are not your thoughts or, you know, um, uh, and in, in allow, allowing for this vision where the Lord can make us into something that we're not and, and that we can feel things that are, we don't currently feel and know things that we don't currently know. And, and, um, so anyway, so I, to be in this place where, and, and ultimately cultivated through, through mindfulness training to just be in this moment and be okay. And if I'm never going to get married, I'm okay with that. And if I do get married, that'll be great, but I'll, that'll happen when I get there. And right now I want to go on a date, and I'm okay with wanting to go on the state or I don't want to go on a date with this person. And that's okay too. Or I don't feel like I'm going to get married or I still can't imagine that. And that's okay too. And just being in this moment without judgment, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think so that process of getting to know my wife and I just gave myself that permission all along the way. Like if I want to go on another date, I'll go on another date. And if I don't, I won't. And I'd go on another date and I'd really enjoy it and go on another date and I'd really enjoy it. And I just, if, if, and at each point, if I wanted to ask her out again, I would. And if I didn't, I wouldn't. And, um, and so th- that's sort of how things evolved was, you know, taking this a day at a time, a day at a time and a date at a time. And, and just really everything about like dating my wife was so easy and she was funny and I just felt myself like I enjoyed being with her. And, and then I started to, it wasn't really very long before I started to, and I sort of felt like I was riding the spiritual wave, like dating had never been easy. And I almost felt like I was sort of living a life that was foreign to me in this moment because it was just so enjoyable and so easy and felt so right in a way that I'd never felt it before. And, and as we, but the spirit was just kind of confirming things along the way and it felt so right and so real. And and that's the way we've done our journey. Like I just, I feel very strongly about following God and, uh, being in this, not living for the moment, but being in this moment fully present and, and being at peace and allowing uh, myself to be at peace and move forward. And, you know, we get all sorts of criticism you know, once people found out we were engaged and dating my wife, I, I really needed this process to be about me and my relationship with God and my relationship with her. So yeah. I didn't tell nobody knew that I was dating until we were actually engaged, except for two of my closest friends. I didn't tell oh, my parents. So it suddenly my, hits the outside and <laughs> it's kind of hard for them to handle. Yeah. I have to kind of moderate this own tendency to shred myself and to pressure myself because I'd lived so long like that. 
Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be like this, or you should be doing this. We call it shooting all over yourselves, right? In kind of therapy, yeah. we should ourselves. And so, and I just, I, that was kind of my own tendency that I had to kind of moderate. Like I didn't need anybody else doing that to me too, you know? And so I, I just, at one point I told my parents, I said, and this early on after I decided that I wasn't going to get married. So this was years earlier. I told my parents that, that they were never to ask me about marriage and that if I had something to tell them, I would tell them and to not say anything until then. Mm-hmm. And they honored that and just kind of let me be me and let me kind of live my journey. And and then once I got engaged, I, I told my parents. And um, But before that, I, I just needed this to be my journey. And this was between me. And then once people found out we were engaged, uh, all sorts of all sorts of criticism and judgments and mm-hmm. uh, and stuff came. That was that was a really interesting time because I I I was doing this for me. Because I felt that it was right not to make a statement or, or, or to just to be obedient to a doctrine. And I, I thought that I would, I kind of kept, even then, even after we got engaged and I started sharing with people close to me, it just seemed like immediately this, it just went sort of people picking up on it. And then, then, then blogs, people are blogging about it. And then somebody put up a website, daniel.dontdoit.com. And like it just became this kind of ugly experience of, of criticism. That's amazingly wrong. <laughs> I, I can see how people sometimes maybe they, I mean, we label each other so easily. And yeah. we want to say, okay, well, all right, Ty's gay, you know, and when we do that, we want the world to be so simple that yeah. that's just the way Ty is. He's not going to yeah. change. I'm comfortable with that. Even though earlier they would be uncomfortable with that. Once uh-huh. they, <laughs> and, you know, I just think that's unfortunate that people have such simple buckets we put each other in and, yeah. You use these labels that we don't give people opportunity to change and be themselves. Well, and we have to do that to ourselves, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know? And so it's natural to do it to other people when it's just kind of that's what we do. Well, it's, I'm glad you got over that. I think it sounds like things are going great for you guys. I mean, I have those who previously been skeptical of your union found that they are good with it now and uh-huh. joyful with you. What was that a question? Well, are those who maybe were skeptical of your marriage, uh, have they learned to be more accepting of it? Um, I don't know. I know that the people who matter to me most really weren't skeptical of it. Yeah. I mean, the people that were closest to me knew who I was and they knew that I was always very thoughtful and careful and mature in the way that I was approaching these things. And so the skepticism is from people who don't know me mm-hmm. or the criticism is people who don't know me or don't. I mean, it was, it's interesting too, because I get a lot of e- either to me or about me. There's this sort of reactive tendency, uh, to people using my story as a way of, again, shooting other people, right? Yeah. See, he did this. Why can't you do that? Right. And I, so and I, I can't go out there and say, you know, to my gay child, Ty Mansfield, he eventually got married and, you know, you can do that too. I mean, is there anything wrong with stating that or do I need to be real careful? Uh, you have to be careful. I think there's a, a difference between, you know, there's an old saying I learned uh, that, that goals can be a light to guide ourselves by or a stick to beat ourselves with. Yeah. And and I think that um, I do think it's healthy to have uh, role models or to to, under, to see that other people are doing different things, but to see a variety. I mean, nobody wants to be told, well, they can, so you should, or they did, they did, or they are, so you should. I mean, it's... It, it's sort of a coercive, manipulative way of yeah. getting somebody to do what you want them to do, and and that's just, that's not gospel. Yeah, and so 
There are some people in the church currently uh, that I know that are openly gay and yet uh, happy with the church, even though there's this uh, clear division between whether homosexuality is right or wrong as, as something that's practiced. And, I mean, what's your approach to these people? I mean, now that I talk to you, it wouldn't be right for me, from your point of view, to say, hey, look, I know you're happy with the church, but you're gay. Well, just give up the gay so you can be, you know, do the whole thing. You know, I mean, how would you respond to such people, and how do you think I should relate to them uh, personally? Uh, I think the doctrine has to, the doctrine will hold the boundary. And the doctrine, we don't need to do God's work for him. Um, the doctrine will hold the boundary. People know the doctrine. And I think our role as members of the church, and it's, and it's the role of ecclesiastical leaders to manage that relationship that people have with the doctrine and covenants and such and such. So when you it's, say the doctrine holds the boundary, uh, I'm not sure I understand what that means. Are you saying that let the doctrine be what it is, but for myself personally, not to be the enforcer? Right, right. I mean, I there is I do not believe for a second that um, that the church is changing its position on uh, boundaries of chastity or of same sex relationships or same sex marriage or anything like that. The church is not going to change in those ways. I firmly believe that. Mm-hmm. And and at the same time, the so so and I believe that the church church leaders and those who have keys of stewardship around covenants and ordinances and things like that are the ones who will hold those boundaries. It's not my job as a member of the church to remind people all the time that they're in sin or or not, right? And yeah. I think as members of the church, our role is to, you know, uh, strengthen the feeble knees and lift up the, hangs, the, the hands that hang down and to mourn with those who mourn and and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. My role as a, as a, a member of the church broadly is to to love people where they're at, to let them have their own journey between them and God. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, there are people who I know who are in same-sex relationships and who I absolutely love. And I do not believe for a second that those same-sex relationships are going to be eternal. And But that's not that's not for me to, to, um, to change for them. I don't know if that's quite the right word I'm looking for, but it's not my role to continually remind them of that. My role is to love them where they are and be in relationship with them and and minister and comfort and, you know, just to be a loving and and healing presence in their lives. And I think that members of the church, it's have to let the doctrines hold the boundary and just focus on their covenants to love and to strengthen. And, um, and I think it's, there's just this, there's these sort of subtle coercive and manipulative things that we can do to each other to get, you know, because we're uncomfortable with where they may be in their life or so-and-so just got a divorce. And so I don't want, I mean, I had, I dated a girl whose, whose parents didn't want her to date me anymore because my parents were divorced. You know, I mean, there's yeah. this sort of, these sort of weird things that they, we do to each other. And, um, and, and, and not that there's not caution in, I mean, there's a difference between judgment condemning and judgment discernment. Like I, I have a, I have a spiritual responsibility to discern truth from error, light from darkness, whatever, right from wrong. Yeah. But I have a, I also have a spiritual responsibility to, um, to not judge in the sense of condemnation. I mean, Elder Oaks gave a great talk called Judge Not and Judging, where he talks about proximate judgments and ultimate judgments. Mm-hmm. Um, we, at all points, we leave ultimate, ju- ultimate judgment to God at all times. But there are times where you have to make proximate judgments, you know, 
Yeah. And and we have to be wise and careful in the way that we make those judgments. So if someone's if someone's in a same sex relationship, I want them sitting next to me in church. You know? And I I you know, I, I'm happy to have them babysitting my children. I mean there's just things that I think re uh letting people kind of be where they are are on their journey and and learning, you know, you know, we as the saying goes in in certain church rituals, we learn we came to earth to learn by experience to know the good from the evil. And we have to let ourselves, allow ourselves and each other to learn by experience, to know the good from the evil, and then to choose the good. And sometimes it just, we all kind of learn different things in different ways. And I think that sometimes, uh, you know, people can even have, even if they're outside the church or if they're in a same-sex relationship, they can learn really valuable things that can help them to come into God in certain ways and relate to God in, in certain in, and in certain ways and, and learn certain things about the world. But I believe at the end of the day, eventually all God will lead all people who are willing to, uh, into the, the fullness of, of salvation and exaltation. And that means that at some point they would have to be open to a relationship with, uh, uh, the opposite sex, that kind of complementary yin and yang, masculine and feminine relationship that is, is kind of the, the epitome of, of, divine mutuality and complementarity and, and union okay so i'd like to ask your uh, proximate judgment on an idea that i have and you know when mm-hmm. i try to you know think about my relationship with people who are um openly gay you know mm-hmm. i think it's hard for me to justify doing certain things with them for a feeling that i'm enabling them uh-huh. uh there's the almost cliched concept of would you make a wedding cake for a gay wedding? You know, would you let your your brother or sister who's gay be in your family pictures with their partner? So, you know, I feel this kind of pressure in both directions. One says, you know, be happy with and accept them as who they are, and even when they choose to do things that I think are, you know, not in the mind of God for them to do, but to somehow, you know, be happy about what they're doing, and yet I don't want to be... <laughs> happy with it on another way so can you see the complexity of this problem sure. i have and how yeah. would you respond to my you know my difficulty in framing this issue i think it's uh, uh well at least for me there's a difference between honoring someone's agency and being present with them in their lives and necessarily being happy for them in some way that i believe is not going to bring ultimate happiness or the fullness of happiness uh, I mean, I'll, I just don't, I, I just, I'll never be excited about a gay marriage or a gay wedding or, or a yeah. gay partnership. I'll never be excited about that. But I'll, but I, but I, but there are some people who are in same sex relationships who I love both of them deeply. Like I really love them. And if they were to have a, if they were to have a marriage, um, or some of them have, but I think that because of, and again, it's sort of like with this experience that I had, I was not in a place, the first mystical experience that I had, I was not in a place where I thought God, I do not imagine God rejoicing with me where I was. You know, yeah. I don't think God was pleased with where I was, but he did want me to know that he loved me. And he, I knew that he was in that journey with me. I knew that he was there and I knew that his love was unfailing. And I think sometimes, and I, I think how, you know, God can do that in a perfect way that I think is hard for mortals to comprehend fully. But I think that sort of tension, that balance is, is, an expression of godliness that we need to be striving for. We need to be able to be present and use the term enabling. And I think mm-hmm. that's an, an important idea. 
uh, an important thing to be cautious of. Um, because if, you know, if my wife's, uh, you know, a, a meth addict, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go, you know, get her drug for her, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be just because I love her. I'm not going to go, uh, you know, you know, pick up her stash for her, you know, because she's really wanting it right now. I mean, there's just certain things that I think there is a, there is a, I think these are important questions and I think the answers may be different between, between the, the circumstances or based on circumstance. But I think that, um, and you use the term who someone is. And I think that that's a very kind of Western pop cultural, um, thing that we sort of, that it's just so kind of, we're sort of saturated with this idea of like, this is who I am, yeah. right? Or this is who they are and they need to be true to their themselves. You know, like I think this idea of how we conceptualize self and what is a real self or a true self. And I mean, this is a very kind of Western pop cultural contemporary idea that is, I think is just not really, I just think there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah, uh, I, I read something that you said about there being actually multiple selves, uh, that we have to choose which to be true to. Yeah, well, it's come, there's a book called Multiplicity that's uh, more of an academic book, but it sort of, it looks at this kind of the psychology of selves and that all of us sort of have these fragmented, in some ways, selves. We'll say a part of me wants to do this, but a part of me wants to do that. Well, like, which one's true? right? Mm -hmm. Which one is who you are or fully reflects who you are. And that all of us at all times in our lives, I mean, we want to be working towards a kind of a congruency and an integration of, of kind of this sense of who is really us, you know, instead of living a compartmentalized or fragmented life, you know, Mm -hmm. but all of us at different points are going to have conflicting values, conflicting beliefs. And I think sometimes living in that tension is, is kind of healthy or learning to live in that tension will invite us into a place of greater maturity and growth. Yeah. Uh, and so I, was... I think asking those questions that you've asked, mm-hmm. the questions are important. You know, what does it mean? When am I enabling somebody and when am I not? When am I showing love or what are some of the things that I do? Because there, and, and all of this, again, like I used to work at a residential treatment center for at-risk teen boys and they had a 10 o'clock curfew, right? And I, and, and I met this, one boy all the time he was like oh why do you hate me you know like it's you know 10 o'clock time to go to bed why do you hate me you know these things like we sort of think that anytime if i'm not if someone doesn't allow me to have my way or doesn't give me what i want they must hate me mm-hmm. and that's a very immature idea and i think yeah. we see those ideas playing out in a very immature way on a in a very collective level culturally yeah and um and i think anyone who thinks you have to want what i want or want for me what I want, or give me what I want, um, or what I think is going to make me happy, or you hate me, is really immature and juvenile. It's a very juvenile way of thinking. And we hear that so much in the in the, the gay marriage debate, same-sex marriage debate. Yeah. And I think that, uh, but there's this, but I think the, the first part of this, I think this idea of deciding, it's not, while I believe, I mean, we, I mean, from a theological perspective, we believe we're all children of God, right? And that yeah. we are literally children of God. And I may know that about somebody who doesn't know that about themselves, or at least according to my belief system, right? Mm-hmm. I walk around and I've got friends who are, you know, into a Christian and we graduate school at a Christian university with folks who had no conception of a pre-mortal world, Right. So it's like, well, I know this thing about you that you don't even know about yourself at this point. But I think always, I think there's a kind of a sense between having knowledge and and awareness that sometimes people don't have and sort of suspending judgment and just saying, wherever you are, that's where you are. 
and I want to witness by example and I want to teach my truth and I want to, I want to, um, and share what I believe in, in a way that I hope will inspire but not coerce. And that's where the difficulty comes because it's hard to go back to your original question about when people will say, or what we were talking about with when people will say, well, Ty Mansfield did it. So can you, or why can't you? That's sort of a manipulative and coercive way of again getting people to do something that I think is right. But I do think it's, and, and I think the, the, the problem sometimes that I have with, uh, LGBT identified folks or kind of this more kind of LGBT affirmative perspective is that often there's this double standard where it's okay and we should be promoting all of these marriages or letting people know that of all of these marriages that don't work. Because again, like I'm so, as much as people might be tired of hearing about, um, Ty Mansfield and what Ty Mansfield or what Josh Weed is doing, right? These are kind of the two that are a little bit better known. Like I'm tired of hearing about Carolyn Pearson and Emily Pearson. I mean, that gets as much as people don't want to be beat over the head with Ty Mansfield or Josh Weed. Other people don't want to be beat over the head with Carolyn Pearson and Emily Pearson. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, it's okay when it's on that side because we're warning you, hmm. right? That these marriages never work, but it's a double standard because they're doing the exact same thing that they don't want to hear. Or some people are doing the same thing uh, to me and to others that they don't want to hear from me or, or about me or about others. And I think all everybody just needs to stand back and say, you know, and I think even talking, even looking at, at marriage and, and being cautious about marriage and being, you know, recognizing, I mean, I know people who are heterosexual, who have experienced no same sex attraction, who I would never want them to get married or, or, or get to married or get to get, get married in the circumstances that they are, because it's very immature. It's very quick. It's based on a lot of euphoria and sexual arousal. Yeah. And there's just no real sense of maturity or groundedness about the way that they're, they're doing it. Like there's, that doesn't, their relationship, my relationship is probably has, is more likely to be successful than theirs is, you know? And, but we use these organizing principles of what gender I'm attracted to for how successful my marriage is going to be. And that's just a very, again, a very simplistic and kind of immature way of thinking about it. And so, um, I would want anybody, and again, as a, as a marriage and family therapist, I would want anybody to make sure they're asking the right questions and enough of the right questions going into marriage that they feel really secure that they're doing this in a mature way, in a reflective way. Um, they've looked at the potential risks and this can be anything from, you know, coming from, uh, different economic backgrounds to different cultural backgrounds. You know, people who come from, from, uh, different cultures are, are more likely to have difficulties in marriage and they're going to have a, a greater likelihood of divorce, greater. It's not guaranteed, but anytime you have like significant differences, there's things you really need to be cautious about and aware of in marriage. And, um, and so those are, but some, you know, people think, well, just, you know, this is why, you know, same sex relationships are, or not same sex relationships, um, mixed orientation, mixed orientation relationships are bound to fail because yada, yada, yada. And I just think that's just such a, an ignorant way of thinking about it that I, you know, I think we just need to have a much a much more mature conversation. And and my want has been because I know so many people who have really healthy, happy, thriving marriages, but they're typically not showing up on surveys or in statistics, or they're not giving you know um, you know they're not giving press releases or things like that. They're they're just kind of moving on, living their lives. And and my want is for people to know what the options are, not to say, and that that paths that are consistent with the church can be happy and people can thrive in those paths and that there are people who are doing it, but there are people who are in happy, healthy, same-sex relationships too. And I think what's really important is that people know what the options are 
And then they themselves have to make that decision for themselves without being coerced or manipulated, be that by people in the church or be that by people in the LGBT community who think this is the only way to, that things can be the only right way to do it. You know, um, I just, I think some of us, some, a lot of people on both sides need to just back off and, and rather than telling people what to do, just help making sure we're all kind of asking the right questions and having a really mature conversation about some of the nuances of all of this and that there are healthy and unhealthy ways to approach any of those options. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really good. I think part of the problem is is, is that we do have so much anger and uh, partisanship is the word I like to use uh, to describe this situation. There's, you know, you're on our side or their side. This is a black mm-hmm. and white issue. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it just kind of breaks my heart because, you know, Americans, we, uh, we, we have our black and white issues. We're Republicans, Democrats, we're gay and lesbian and straight. And mm-hmm. I think there's... For or against gun rights, you know, use pick it. it. Seems like our human nature just wants to make a simple black and white world where there's good people and bad people, rather mm-hmm. than ideas that we're trying to make work and to bring ultimate happiness. You know, we don't want to admit to the uh, nuances and the complexity of it all. Uh, yeah. Have you ever had success in helping people? understand this complexity and maybe having peace with it rather than fear of uh, of this, I guess, mutual respect and understanding amid a complex environment that we're in. Um, yeah, some. And I think it's not just me. I think that there's several movements in place. I think uh, an initiative is in place. I think the thing, in order to kind of live in that tension and be in that space of being present with sort of the complexity and present with the nuance. I mean, there's, I don't know if you've ever read or heard of, it was kind of a classic talk that Elder Hafen gave years and years ago. And I think it was when he was still at BYU Law School, but it's called Love is Not Blind. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how, um, from a faith perspective, people go from this sort of oversimplistic devotional perspective of the gospel where the brethren have no faults. Joseph Smith was only just a man of like perfect faith. And if we could only just be like Joseph Smith and, you know, yada, 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 right? Yeah. This sort of the, the kind of the sort of the kind of the correlated Sunday school manual version of Mormonism. Yeah. And then when people, sometimes when people learn things or the, or they, or maybe they never even came in the church, it's the other side. It's, you know, Joseph Smith was just a philanderer and a, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, right? Yeah. And, you know, the brethren, it's all about power and, and authority and, and yada, yada. There's a sort of, both of those are really immature perspectives. Yeah. And he talked about in this love is not blind. He talked about that, that's living in that kind of space of, it, it requires a level of, it requires a high level of maturity to live with ambiguity. Yeah. And we live in a world where there's a lot of ambiguity and, and yet people don't like ambiguity. They don't like vulnerability because ambiguity can sometimes feel vulnerable. And we certainly don't like vulnerability. Yeah. And and so we want to make things clean and we want to make things black and white and we want to make them really simple. Um and and you see that on both you see that on from lots of different perspectives, but he in this love is not blind talk, he was talking about li- having a mature faith in the gospel where we can understand that that church leaders are human and sustain them as prophets and revelators or recognize some of these compl- some of the complexities or difficulties or even tragedies in in church history or church culture or or whatever. But kind of embrace it all in the same way you embrace a spouse. Like I know my, you know, my wife and I, neither of us are perfect. We both have weaknesses. We both have faults. And yet we choose to love each other and covenant with each other, even in those. 
And we're going to kind of work through those together. And that's kind of what a healthy covenant community does. You know, I think of Eugene England's talk that the church is as true as the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a classic article or, uh, yeah. from your, there's that sort of sense where we recognize when we have a mature perspective on all of these things, we recognize that being in a congregation with other people who are going to say dumb things or who might offend me or who I hope aren't going to leave when I offend them or when I say dumb things like that's just part of yeah, being human. Yeah, being human and, and, and being in a mature space of faith. And I think the same thing, if we could just apply that same template or that same idea to these issues, like you find people on one side or the other in the sense of, or kind of this kind of, it's just a modern form of tribalism. It's just this kind of us versus them. And, and, and I think to come to this more mature space of faith, I don't have to compromise my beliefs or compromise my, compromise my values or beliefs or principles in order to be in a relationship with somebody that I disagree with yeah, or, or to love them or even to grant them full freedom to live their life, how they feel is right. Even if I don't, you know, again, like I have lots of friends. I believe that the church is true. I have lots of friends who have never been members of the church or who have, have been in the church and have left the church. And I, I kind of honor them. They, they, you know, they need, they have to walk their own journey. I am not responsible for their lives. I am responsible for my covenants to love them, to, you know, to, um, to live my values in a way that, that hopefully can be a positive influence on others. But, but again, not in a, but never to be manipulative and never to be coercive or never try to force somebody into something that if, if a, if a life of faith is going to be meaningful, it has to come from, it has to come from within. I think anytime we feel pressure from without, it's just not really sustainable, you know? And I think even though I believe in the gospel, I think somebody who's staying in the church just because I don't want to be rejected by my family and just because of social or cultural pressure, I don't think that that's a healthy way to do faith. I don't think that's a healthy way to live uh, the, the standards of the church. And that at some points, something's got to give. They either have to have a, a healthier, they have to develop a healthier relationship with the church and a healthier relationship with God and themselves and the life of faith, or they're going to find themselves outside of it doing something else. So I think whatever choices people make in their lives, my want would be that they, you know, have as much information as a therapist. Like my job is not to tell people if I have, I've seen lots of, uh, of, of gay couples uh, in therapy and my role is not to tell them how they should live their life. My role is to honor self-determination and to help them live their values and their choices in ways that are most healthfully. Or most okay. Healthy. So to understand correctly, you've actually counseled with uh, gay couples in order to help them enhance their relationship. Is that uh-huh. correct? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, a lot of, and a lot of the things that I, that I, and the way that I conceptualize this is that, um, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, one of my mantras is, is like the, you know, the way we do relationships is the way we do human, you know, if I don't do human well, or if I don't, if I do human in a way that's cut really unhealthy, that's going to, that's, it's going to, I'm going to do relationships the same way. And, and a lot of the people that I see and a lot of the issues that are showing up in their relationships are really because they just do human in unhealthy ways. And sometimes relationships give us a, this sort of microcosm or crucible in which we are our, our dysfunctions or our weaknesses or our issues are accentuated and and it can be you know i've worked with you know i mean a lot of most of the people that i've worked with they would have the same issues if they were in an opposite sex relationship and so yeah. if i could help them do relationship healthier or to do life healthier i would want to do that 
you know, I mean, if they wanted sex therapy, I would probably recommend that they find somebody that might be better, a better fit for them. But if we're just talking about relationships and the way they do human, I mean, in, in those ways, we're all way more the same than we are different. And so it just, it doesn't matter to me. You come in with a same sex partner or an opposite sex partner and you happen to be cohabitating or whatever. I mean, you just, you work with so many different people in so many different circumstances, or I have, that I think that, that, um, you just come to this place where they're not coming to me as a therapist to tell them how to live their life. In, in terms of values, they're coming to me because something's not working. And, and within their values or their, their beliefs, you kind of have to sensitively explore, help them explore, make sure they're asking the right questions, looking at what some of their issues are, wounds, helping them heal some of those, those things. And, and then ultimately they have to live the life that they want to live, but I can help them live that life in, in as healthy a way as possible. You know, I read your, um, your homosexuality and the gospel uh, PDF that you sent to me, uh-huh. and you know, I really enjoyed reading it. I think the one thing that maybe I would have a question about, and I know we talk about the idea of the gospel is never changing, uh-huh. and you believe firmly that there's parts of it that will never change. Okay, sorry about that. Okay, that's fine. So, you mentioned that you know, certain things won't change in the gospel. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to know if you think that, I mean, can we be so confident and sure that homosexual unions are, you know, that isn't something that is going to change similar to, you know, the often used example of, say, blacks in the priesthood? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you feel that, there's, there, that you or I can really say what the church will or will not do in the future? Because I've kind of felt... To, not to say whether the church should or shouldn't change gay marriage policy or doctrine, because I just don't feel like my relationship with God is the same as theirs that I can tell them I know. Uh-huh. You see a problem with that? Um, no, no, I don't. I just, I think that, um, I think the idea is, I mean, obviously when, when people are, are, are contemplating metaphors for how the church or ongoing insight will uh, change our perspective or policies or even doctrine around this issue. Uh, you know, people talk about polygamy or, or they'll talk about race and the priesthood. I think both of those are really flawed examples that don't, mm-hmm. that don't, that do not accurately really even speak to, they just don't apply well, I think, to the issue with same sex attraction or, or homosexuality. And I think that, um, there's nothing, and, and this is, this probably gonna, this is gonna, uh, I don't know that I've ever vocalized this, but I, but there's, there is nothing theologically or sociologically about homosexuality or same sex relationships that makes sense. Like nothing. Um, I understand it because I understand, I understand the emotions and it's, it's more about emotional. There's, you know, the emotional bond, the desire for closeness, the desire for connection, um, sexual attraction. I understand that certainly. Like I understand what it looks like on a level of feeling. But if we truly believe in, in a gendered universe, there is nothing about same-sex relationships in an eternal, complementary, creative relationship that makes any sense. I mean, yeah. we can try to create this kind of mental space for it. I mean, you know, Taylor Petrie's like doing this thought experiment on a post-heterosexual Mormon cosmology or whatever. I think, I think it's just such a stretch in every sense of it's such a stretch theologically. It's a stress, so, a stre- a stretch uh, sociologically. 
and yet I get it on a, on a, on a, in a very real way in terms of feeling or attractions or desires, at least in the way that I've historically felt. Um, but, it, but in terms of what it means there being a divine feminine and a divine masculine, or if we do believe that gender is, uh, is eternal, at least in, in that it's, there's a, a pre-mortal gender and a post-mortal gender and that, that God is male and that we have a mother in heaven and that this sort of complementary union of the divine masculine and the divine feminine of male and female in a divine exalted way, there, there's just nothing that, um, on any level that, that feels right outside of emotions and desires that feels right about same sex relationships or same sex, um, marriage. Um, yeah. So I think that I just, there's, I, I just can't even imagine. Um, I mean, I, and granted, I mean, if something came and the Lord reveals it with, with this, some kind of, I just firmly believe that the, that the further light and knowledge that's coming will come on an individual level. I do believe that there will be further light and knowledge. And I believe that some of that will come to the church. I believe the bulk of it will come to people who are gay identified or lesbian identified who, who realize that there is a world beyond their present experience that they can grow and transcend and transform into and that that includes a complementary union with someone of the opposite sex okay. that's I, I firmly believe that the greater light and knowledge that people think are going to come will come to those and not that we won't learn more as a church or uh or that you know that god may may reveal more in in some way but i think that the the bulk of of the further light and knowledge that's coming will come to those who um who are kind of caught in very mortal, very earthbound, very here and now in this kind of cultural context way of thinking about same-sex sexuality. Yeah. So I wanted to I want to ask you um, about it or tell you about an experience that I had uh, with my wife, uh, and I was, I guess, looking at stuff on Wikipedia and uh, wasting time that way. Uh-huh. And I ran into the concept of a, a chimera, uh-huh. which is, and this is so extremely rare, and it's not related to homosexuality that, that I know of, but it potentially could be. Uh, what happens is, is that uh, fraternal, not fraternal, but identical twins, no, no, it was fraternal twins. Fraternal twins are born, but or they're fertilized, and the eggs wind up so close to each other in the uterus that they actually form a single person. And they've found uh, boys who are grown with female um, uh, ovaries. Um, they've, you know, you have people who take a DNA test that says their kids are not theirs, but could belong to a sister or a brother, which they don't have. And uh-huh. so this is one of those extremely rare oddball situations. I brought up to my wife. I thought this is really interesting. And she's like, that could be a problem. Why would God do that and allow that to happen? And I didn't really feel it was that big of a deal. I thought, well, I, I don't know. I mean, spirit, the spiritual is different from the physical, and God knows what they are. <laughs> so, But uh-huh. I don't want to be in that person's shoes necessarily. So I guess this is another part of the ambiguity. And though this isn't homosexuality, I, I kind of wonder about other ways that the body might, you know, be you know, off or different from what I might consider normal and I guess some anxiety, not understanding how, how God's going to handle that. And I think that's why I kind of keep my mind open in a sense that there are alternates 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you uh, can empathize with that feeling at all, or yeah, certainly. I mean, my my doctoral my doctoral work is on uh, gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. and which used to be DSM five or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is uh, is called gender dys- dysphoria. It used to be called gender identity disorder, right? It's kind of the transgender uh, spectrum of of issues, and. Mm-hmm. And then as a part of that, you know, it's, there's a little bit of overlap. Uh, it's, it's a pretty distinct issue, but there's sometimes a little bit of overlap into what, you know, is commonly called intersex conditions or disorders of sex development. Yeah. And, you know, the kind of the pop term is, is intersex, but, but the clinical or the academic term when people are talking about these is, is disorders of sex development. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there are, and I, I'm really kind of interested in exploring this on a deeper level. And in my career and kind of in thinking and writing and, and that sort of thing. But, but I do believe that there are some important questions that, and some valuable questions that we learn from some of these things. And, and I don't think, you know, I've talked to some people about them, like, so what about that? Right. And then people say, well, that's just so extremely rare, you know? And I think even if it is rare, it's still valuable to think about. And it certainly poses some interesting and important theological questions. Yeah, I mean, God allowed it to happen. I'm right, suppose. right. And there, but, can't, there has to be something there. And with most disorders of sex development, there's, um, you know, there's going to be kind of a, a clear, and you know, unless you have, you know, XXY or XYY or XXYY, and there's different kind of chromosomal variations that I don't know how that makes how that plays out. But I think that if, um, but in terms of, for example, like there's a, a condition called uh, androgen insensitivity uh, syndrome. And there's full and then there's partial, there's, there's degrees of that. But basically, like, there's an androgen, you know, in sex development, there's an androgen that's introduced. Cause everyone, you know, uh, all fetuses start to develop as, um, female until a certain androgen is introduced into the sex development process mm-hmm. that, that signals for the fetus to develop as male. Okay. Right? And if the, if the, if the fetus is immune or the body is immune to that androgen on some partial or full level, you can have a chromosomal male that develops phenotypically as female. Hmm. And it's interesting. And so it, it, in that case, sure, that's an, that's a really interesting question. So if we have a chromosomal male who has full, full androgen insensitivity syndrome and they develop, uh, into a, a phenotypically as a female, you know, and, and they would be infertile. Like there's, there's certain things that, that would work out there. But if they, yeah. but if they developed phenotypically into a female, is, is that, is that, is their spirit male or is their spirit female? And I think that there is, that's interesting to me. And I think that poses an important, that poses, invites us into some very important ways of thinking and, and reflecting about things. And so I know that I, I, I firmly believe in this idea of us being male or female in terms of spirit. And I believe that sometimes our bodies in developmental processes, whether that happens uh, intrauterally or whether that happens in early childhood or even in adulthood or adolescence or adulthood. But I think that there are certain things that are, um, it, it, it poses certain questions. And, and for example, like when I wrote Voices of Hope, there was a, a one gentleman, one of the stories was of a gentleman who experiences uh, gender dysphoria. And he, uh, again, a biological male, and from his earliest memories really wanted to be a female. And always imagined himself as a female and fantasized about himself as a female and kind of believed, I don't know the degree that I'd have to clarify with him, but I don't remember the degree that he thought he was female or wanted to be female because those are different in terms of, of kind of how things will play out. 
but certainly on some level saw himself as, as female and really wanted to be female. And he says, most members of the church won't appreciate that part of my testimony is that I had to gain a testimony that I was male, that my spirit is male and receive hmm. spiritual confirmation that that was true. And, and he has received spiritual confirmation, uh, that his, that his spirit is male, but for whatever reason, he has this dysphoria, right? And this, and that he still is, you know, and still level is, is of some conflict to him. And a lot of people in kind of the transgender community, some people believe that they are female, that their spirit is female. In, in some sense, like I, while I don't necessarily believe that, uh, females are born in male bodies, I'm willing to suspend or kind of kind of suspend some of that judgment and hold possible theological space that for some reason a female came into a male body for some reason. I don't know. Again, I don't believe that that's true. I don't, I, I, but I'm, but that's an area where I feel like I can at least suspend enough judgment to, to believe that there may be that possibility. Yeah. But, but I, but I, but Chip, typically I don't believe that's the case. And I just even last night had a, a conversation with someone about, uh, a woman who, who joined the church a few years ago, had investigated the church for a long time, gender dysphoric, um, and who didn't, who, who, the, the thing that made her join the church, and this is a her who is in the process of transitioning into a male, mm-hmm. had this, had this vision of herself as a she sitting, speaking with God in the pre-mortal world, and talking about gender dysphoria and talking about what this conflict would be like and how this would play out. And, and again, having this vision open. And in that moment, as part of this vision, she knew that the church was true and she decided to get baptized. Mm. And and yet that that conflict has never really gone away for her and and has reached a point where she's just struggled with it so deeply that she's now transitioning. She's now transitioning uh, and, and is currently going by male pronouns, but, you know, is currently living as a male. And yet has this inner knowledge that her spirit is female or his spirit is female. However you, whatever pronouns you're kind of operating from. Right. And I think that that's just really messy stuff. And it's like, at at some point it's not, none of those decisions are mine to make about what is right or what is wrong. I mean, I would like to believe that someone would, if they knew that about themselves spiritually, that they would live in a way to kind of align with that. Mm -hmm. But, but I don't understand the conflict. And I think with a lot of folks, there's a lot of other issues going on. And I just, I know that we have a loving God. And at the end, God will help everybody to get to where he wants them to be. But but I think there's just so many of these conflicts and these questions, and I think they're interesting to ask and important to ask. And at the end of the day, I don't think it changes, because this kind of chimera concept, <clears throat> I don't think changes, um, uh, I don't think that affects or or, or would, would challenge the doctrine for me. Yeah. That there is a spirit of that that we are individual spirits and as spiritually we're male or female, even if in some sort of biological or developmental process in mortality, in this kind of mortal overlay piece, something gets crossed or some wires get crossed or some hormones, some hormonal infusion changes something or affects something. I think ultimately the, the spiritual quest is to transcend transcend mortality and um you know president mckay president mckay defined spirituality as the conscious victory over self and and i think that's a beautiful way of of describing what spirituality is and the spiritual process that we have to the spirituality is this kind of process of and and of communion is growing into who we really are and transcending whatever experiences may be mortal in nature um However difficult or, or whether those things change or whether they don't change, 
in, engaging in this process of of transcendence and, and transformation into who we really are and what we have the potential to become, regardless of what we feel or, or are experiencing on some kind of mortal human level. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it seems to me that the transcendent part of faith is is often missing. I think yeah. even, uh, you know, in our general discussions at church, we talk about doctrines and rules. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I've had personal experiences where, you know, I was just struggling with a problem. And it turned out, I mean, it doesn't happen overnight sometimes, but it seems that through all this struggle, you get to a point where you can finally transcend. And mm-hmm. I think the story of Christ um, is a perfect example of that transcendence, you know, where you you learn to let go, you know, of the injuries and the hurts, and you kind of accept them at the same time. I wish I could explain this better, but, I, you know, I really feel like our job on this planet, you know, is to overcome ourselves, and when other people fail and do things that hurt us, themselves or others, we're supposed to make the best out of that. You know, not necessarily condone it, but yeah. at the same time, we're we're going to take the pain that, you know, they felt. We're yeah. going to suffer with them. And by doing that, we can actually erase the pain, some of the pain, in a spiritual yeah. sense, with Christ. And uh, we can be like him and provide a measure of atonement for each other. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate talking with you today, Ty, and I really admire you. I admire your faith, and I, I think a lot of people can learn and benefit uh, from your story. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. I'm happy to be here. 